you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick, Portfolio Manager with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth, and Colin White, Portfolio Manager with the Varican Capital Management, Inc. All right, Bare Naked Money coming at you. Newest pod here, Colin and Josh. And Colin is going to give me his stream of consciousness today from the last couple well, of weeks. Well, Josh has done a great job of the last number of podcasts on coming to me with a list and getting my reaction. Well, quite frankly, I'm tired of being the one doing the reacting. So I decided that we should flip it on its head. And I've taken over the last while to be a little bit more consistent with commenting things on LinkedIn. So there's kind of a public record of the stuff that got my interest. And Josh is a busy guy. He doesn't always get to see my LinkedIn posting. So I figured I'd go article for article with what it is I've noticed and see if Josh figures out what my comment would be. See how well he knows me. Are you ready, Josh? I'm ready. Let's do it. I think I know you really well, but I guess this will be what this will be the proof. Proof is in the pudding, right? All right. Well, fine. All right. Let me uh, take a look here. So which one should I? Oh, a softball. You ready for a softball? Let's do it. All right. So there's an article in the Financial Post, and I'll just give you the title. I don't have to give you any more context than the title. More than half of Toronto new condo investors are losing money for the first time. <laughs> okay, well, this could go a lot of different ways. It's not as easy as you think. Uh, <laughs> oh, great. My thinking is that you said the prize real estate is not always the greatest investment on earth. That was where I started, but I, I got a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more caring with my actual conclusion. You know, because you know, these people are now in a tough spot because yeah. the, mor- the mortgages have renewed or they've taken out a mortgage or committed to a mortgage that's in excess of what they can get in rent because of what's happened. So I, I, I leapt to it's, here's the problem. This is a difficult investment to get out of, right? Because the environment has changed. Yeah. It is now not in your favor. And it's not like you can place a trade on the market and get out of the obligation because it's a levered investment. Yeah. yeah. Right. And everybody was always so quick to dismiss. It's an illiquid investment. That doesn't matter because it's so stable. Right. It's so stable up until it isn't. And then when yeah. it's not stable, the consequences can last for years. Mm-hmm. There's, there are people who are going to be stuck in this situation of the money losing investment for years. I've got clients who are stuck in these situations from previous moves in the real estate markets. So the, the danger is not that it goes wrong this year. The danger is it goes wrong and it stays wrong because you can't get enough out of the property in the current market to pay off the mortgage. Therefore, you're stuck with it. So you continue to lose money month over month for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Being somebody who is barely in tune with the Toronto condo market, having owned condos myself in Toronto, uh, no longer anymore as we moved last year, but have a lot of friends as well, uh, in the same market, I can say anecdotally that there have definitely been people for not just this last year, but multiple years running at a cash flow negative position with, uh, real estate investments. And I've seen this because I have, again, friends renting condos and they can do all the math between what the person paid for the property, what the mortgage is likely at, what their uh, cash outflows on a regular basis, and they know what they're paying in rent. So if you're bringing in less money every month that is going out the door, that's cash flow negative. And my 
positioned a lot of clients that asked about real estate investments over the last several years is if you're cash flow positive, I can see it as a viable investment. And then you get a little bit on the cash flow and then you get price appreciation on top. If you're cash flow negative, now you're relying on the price appreciation. And after we've seen really a banner two decades for the Canadian real estate market, it's hard for me to justify that that price appreciation is going to be there consistently year in and year out. And it's difficult to commit to a negative cash flow, right? For sure. a long period of yeah. time, right? Like that's, that's going to impact your lifestyle in ways that you probably are not going to enjoy. So, but you know, all of these risks aside, once you're there and you decide you want to get out, that's not an easy situation. You can get stuck in something like this for a long period of time. So back to when you're assessing how great it is to invest in real estate. If you do a calculation based on aggressive assumptions that it's going to give you a six or seven percent return or eight percent, is that and my question always back is does that justify the level of risk that you're taking? Because these things are material when they go sideways. So it's always a matter of if you're going to do it, keep it in uh, the proper percentage of your overall net worth rather than making it. This is the one thing that always works. No, it don't. So, and this is again, highlighting, and, the, and I feel bad. There are people underwater here, but again, I've got people in different markets. I got a client, a couple of clients in the Calgary market who are sitting on properties who've just gotten back to what the mortgage is. Yeah. Right. So they're just starting to cross the threshold. It was like, if they really wanted to, they could get out. But it hasn't been there for five years, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that—that's a significant risk, given the best situation. Like, if you're going to go into something and the you know the projected upside is thirty percent, okay, well, I'm willing to accept maybe you know yeah. having a you know a tremendously you know bad outcome like you know a negative cash flow for five years, you know, or maybe you know there, there's a way to even that equation. I, I just have it anyway. Real estate's not a bad investment. We have to keep saying that. It's just not the be all and end all. And when it goes sideways, it goes sideways in a big way. Yeah. So I saw this article too. And I, I think the, one of the points was that rents needed to come up and that, that could be bad for rent renters and it could be inflationary. So coming back to the whole inflation topic that is so top of mind right now. But I remember about 10 years ago at the year had investment conference that the company used to put on, there was a read analyst. And said it's kind of the same thing and more of an investment focused theme to it is rents are X, prices are Y, that gap is historically large. So his theory was prices need to come down. But I think there's two things that can happen. And is in this case, they're arguing that rents go up. So either rents go up or prices come down or both things happen to kind of level the playing field a little bit more. Where would you put the probabilities of those two things? What do, you, what do you think is more likely? Well, but I think the challenge is just in a vacuum because the problem is, is if rents go up, that's inflationary, which is going to drive interest rates higher. So you're almost like chasing a moving target mm -hmm. if, you know, because if interest rates keep going higher than the rent. So you get into that spiral, right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't think this is as simple as you just do one or the other, just a combination of the two. It's going to happen in concert with a whole bunch of other changes to reach an equilibrium because yeah. otherwise. On its own, this could turn into its own spiral. I mean, there's you know, the, the argument that we could see a wage spiral where wages keep going up, which drives up the cost of goods, which drives up wages, which drives, that that spiral could be contributed to by the same thing in the rental market. I don't think it's a simple two variable equation. I think yeah. it's a matter of a number of things have to level out that reduces pressure on interest rates and allows 
for somewhat increasing rents, but also allows for an easing interest rate environment to allow that that part to settle out. Uh, so it's, I think it's a multi-headed monster for sure. Mm-hmm. Which can cascade into what I read just minutes before I came online. Just minutes before this started. Like this is as fresh as like, if this is a piece of fish, it wouldn't even smell like fish. That's how fresh this is. <laughs> fresh out of the sea. That's right. Like All you right. just pull the fish out of the water and it doesn't even smell like fish yet. So Josh, I don't know if you read it cause you're on the West coast and you may be ahead of me on the reading, but it's, uh, the, the GDP number came out for Canada, mm-hmm. uh, annualized rate of 3.1% in the first quarter, exceeding analyst expectations as well as projections. So the increase was the bank of Canada was produced predicting 2.3% and it's 3.1. Now. Guess what the headline is, or maybe you read the headline. Your headline or the headline? The headline. The headline. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Go for it. Bank of Canada more likely to raise interest rates. Okay. Instead of celebrating, yeah, we had banner economic growth, which <laughs> which 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 look which pushes that whole recession thing further away. Yeah. Rather than saying recession less likely now because the economy continues to grow. The headline was, oh my God, interest rates are going to go up now. Yeah. So, you know, there is no positive headline that's going to come out either. The, the, the GDP growth was going to be less than expected and, oh my God, that's terrible. The recession is more likely or it's robust and everybody's making money. Oh my God, that means interest rates are going to go up. Yeah. I don't know that I have seldom ever been in a situation where the news is so locked in on a negative headline, regardless of the information. And having a, a compelling story that it can revert back to that everybody is going to buy. Yeah. I can't really say I'm surprised that, that it's a negative headline. We've been talking about this for a long time. And as you're talking there, I'm just thinking, how long have we been talking about this recession now happening, right? Around the corner, this recession's around the corner. It feels like a year and a half now. And I think it, it is really, it's about that, that amount of time. So just to me, if, if I'm writing a comment for you to post on LinkedIn, I'm going to immediately go to, this is why you can't be that certain about the future. This is why economic predictions are so faulty. This is why you can't rely on the so-called experts to to tell you what's going to happen next, because here we are dragging ourselves along a year and a half into really strong economic growth when a recession was predicted all along. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, in. It's nice to have a conversation for recreational purposes. We can debate ideas. I mean, there are people who are on debating teams and they just pick things to argue about. If that's what you're doing, then hey, more power to you. If you're trying to make investment decisions based on the outcome of a debate, ah, oh, come on. No, just understand what's investable and what isn't. What's All that? right. So you want what's, well, let's see here. All right. I, I, I must admit, I went popular. I, I, I tried to pick something that was popular and relate it back and see if there was something to learn. So I, I, I became a Swifty. I jumped I, on the. Oh my God. Yeah. I, you were going to go here. I don't know why I was going to joke about it. I was going to say, you're going to talk about Taylor Swift concert tickets. I can't believe you actually went there. No, 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 not concert tickets. Okay. No, no. I, I had to be, I had to be more edgy than that. I read an article about Taylor Swift's love life. Oh, okay. Uh-uh. He lost right, me. So I'm out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that now you're wondering, how did you tie that back? How could you possibly have found something that was relatable to anything else in there? Is that the question, Josh? Yeah. 
It is. So the headline of the article in the National Post, Jamie is sharconic. The mob's impossibly high expectations for Taylor Swift. Mm. Okay. Okay. Does that help you where I might go with it? Yeah. Well, impossibly high expectations. So I think when I think about the stock market and investing, there are some impossibly high expectations. So expectations that are so high and so crazy that they're just impossible to, to, for, for the company, no matter how good, to actually live up to those expectations. And where my mind immediately goes is today with AI. And specifically, if, if you've read the headlines over the last couple of weeks, NVIDIA, uh, which has seen a tremendous run because they make chips for you know specializing in AI, I guess we can call it. It's been a crazy year for, for that stock and people have made tremendous gains. But I read or heard today that it's trading at about 30 times its revenue. So we're getting into bubbly territory where these are some of the same numbers that you have that the tech stocks trading at high, high, high flying tech stocks in the early 2000s, which is a little scary for investors in that company. All right. Well, because it's public record, that's not the comment I made, but you t- you've taken it one step further and I absolutely get how you got where you went. I was just reading, it was a mob. All right. So again, the Taylor Swift fans are this rabbit fan base who are absolutely fanatical with their support for Taylor Swift, which is kind of neat and scary to see. Um, but it's a, it's a rabbit group of people who all have something in common. I compared it to Trump supporters and, and how rabbit that group is. Oh, but I, but I do think that comparing it to the Nvidia followers actually is a more, more applicable take on this because what what those groups do and all three groups that we're talking about whether it's nvidia or whether it's trump or whether it's taylor swift fans they get so rabid about something they seize on the smallest of little details and elevate it to a level that just makes no sense when the actual issue at hand is always nuanced so for the example the taylor swift article was that she's apparently dating this guy who said something five years ago that wasn't very palatable so the whole conversation is about the thing that this guy said five years ago and how important that is and how that signals that Taylor Swift doesn't care about her fans anymore. And like all of these extreme extrapolations being made on the smallest little problem of information and everybody is going at it with the same fervor that they go at with being a member of the tribe. And so I think that that there's a lot of parallels between Taylor Swift and NVIDIA. Look at me getting new audience, right? <laughs> Now that the NVIDIA followers are probably seizing on the smallest little detail on the AI news front and using it to jack up their expectations for this amazing firm. So, you know, there's something to learn pretty much everywhere. And I can get Taylor Swift fans to look at my LinkedIn profile now because I tied Taylor Swift to actual other things. Yeah. And for the record, I think Taylor Swift is a very talented artist, uh, despite it not being right up my alley in terms of music that I usually listen to, but I wouldn't pay $5,000 a ticket for floor seats. That's for sure. I wouldn't pay $5,000 for a floor seat to see pretty much anything, but you know, that that's just me being old and cranky and appreciating sitting in my chair at home watching stuff. So. Yeah. But I digress. See, good job. See, you, you took my comment and even took it one further. Let's see what else was on my list here. Uh, well, that's not fair. We already talked about that one. We talked about that one. Um, 
Ooh, there's a great article in CTV News about a week ago talking about mixed uses for office conversions, a possible future for the urban core. So what I commented on is not all in the title. So let me give you a little bit more to go on. All right. Yeah. So it laid out the uh, recent data from CBRE Canada PEG, the country's overall office vacancy rate at an all time high of 17.7% for the first quarter of 2023. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a actual number that was put out by a reputable organization. And there you go. The Toronto's office vacancy rate is their highest number in 30 years at 15.5%. And it gets into more, more, more detail. It then pivots to mixed use benefits. So they start talking about switching the opportunity to switch these office spaces over to more mixed use, which would more residential and address some of the concerns in the residential space and building out the case for, uh, turning these into residential units. So. What do you think my comment would have been on that article, Jack? That's it was a good question. I don't know where you would have gone with this one. My, if I have to guess, and it's not a very, a very uh, strong feeling for me, but you would talk about the difficulty and length of time that it would take to convert an office building to residential. Largely, yes. But what I said was the uh, the, the pivot from fact to conjecture. In the article, like it, it gave a fact, which is news and that's newsworthy and that's important to know. But when it gets into the space of projecting what happens next and what the opportunity is, now you're building a fairy tale because you know, there's no reliable way to know what percentage of those real office spaces have any kind of a feasible business plan to be converted to a residential space because there's more than material differences between commercial and residential construction. And when they start talking about, hey, if, if you know X percentage of these offices are converted into space at this rate and yada, 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 you're now speculating. Yep. Now it's, it's interesting speculation, but to read that article and come out and say, hey, there's a big investable opportunity here, which is, I think, what they're hoping people will read that story as and, you know, and follow for that reason. And there's a huge economic benefit to those who want to want to portray that story. That's. That's where you run off the rails. I think stating a fact, office vacancy rate is as high as it's ever been is very instructive in building a picture on what's going on right now in, in the world because anecdotally, I would see that to be true, but to have it backed up by statistics, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Office space has never been more empty than it is right now. For all of the contributing factors that we would know about work from home and COVID technology advancements over COVID and all that kind of stuff. What comes next is completely a different story because yeah. I know that you know, there's, there's all kinds of pressure on construction right now in residential space. So there's not a, not a plethora of, a, of, of crews out there who would be able to jump on an opportunity like this. And again, I, I don't think it's clear at all that that's what's going to happen, whether we're just going to knock these down and build new buildings. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know. So we did talk about this as, as an investment committee probably a couple months ago, because I, I think it is an interesting idea. And this is what sort of holds us in more than these high flying Taylor Swift stories. It's more so that this thing is beaten up. It looks really bad right now. How can there be a path to better things in the future? Cause that's all it needs to be is better. It doesn't need to be back to what it was in 2019. It just needs to be better. 
And I think there is a path there. And we've talked about this amongst ourselves. We think there is a path there to either converting to residential, which I have a good friend in the real estate uh, development business. And he said, yes, this is the real thing. It can happen. But his company is investing in some of these, these projects for five, 10 plus years. They have that luxury of having that time frame. And so that is a very long time to think about as an investor. Uh, I mean, not, not really. That's how people should be thinking, but it's tough to say, well, I'm going to acquire something today. It might be garbage for the next five years. And then you'll start to see some, some turnaround after we throw a whole bunch more money at something. And to your point, it is still very speculative at this point. And there's not a whole lot of um, clarity on how you can move from point A to point B, because not only does it take time and money, it also takes a lot of government intervention and regulatory approvals, which that is not the most fast moving space, uh, as we know. No, we're reliable. You know, the, the, the government can rule for or against something depending on whims of what, where the most votes are going to be at any point in time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, it's B was a great example of a news article that had some very good facts in there, which were very informative and could inform somebody on what the current situation is for sure. And then wrote it right into the ditch with you know, some fairly detailed speculations and straight line projections that just yeah, entertaining. Yes, but you know, reliable enough to, to make an investment on me. Again, our conversation internally has been how, how can you possibly identify the good ones? Like what, what's, what are the, what are the harbingers of, of, of the good ones? Mm -hmm. And it gets into being kind of geographic specific because right? yeah. geographically it's going to be, it's not a homogeneous thing across any country or any geography. There's going to be winners and losers. Well, are we smart enough to pick the right geography? Are we smart enough to pick the right, you know, municipality from a regulatory standpoint? But, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. And to date, I don't think any of us are tremendously excited about any one opportunity we've seen, but it doesn't mean we're not looking. Yeah, that's, that's true. So, all right, let's go back up here. To, ooh, this is one that I just put up today. And I don't know if you've heard me rant about this or not, Josh, this might, might not be a fair one because it's not, this is more in the planning world than it is in the investment world. So this may not be as fair. So I'll, 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 I'll grade you on a curve on this one. All right. So if you get anywhere close to my thoughts on this one, it's going to be an A plus. All right. Okay. When your child isn't fit to be your successor, but passing down the family business. Oh, okay. So it's a whole idea about, you know, passing down the family business to the next generation and how beneficial it is and how wonderful it is and, you know, the challenges in doing that, but basically building up the idea that passing the business on in a family is, is a positive thing. Yeah. Well, I've heard you talk about this a couple of times. Uh, one direction you may have gone is, does your child even want to work in the family business? Uh, the second way that you could have gone, which I've heard you say a couple of times, I believe is that it takes three generations to basically destroy all the wealth is, is what some statistics have shown. So yeah. I don't know. Am I, am I in the ballpark call? You are, you are. And, and, and I guess, yes, you do have the right to use what I've said in the past and we spent a lot of time together. So yes, you probably have heard me rant and rave about this a little bit. But no, I, I, I pointed out the, the idea that. Somebody who's able to start a business from nothing, get it up and running, 
and have a stable enough relationship that results in kids, um, that's a pretty small group. Now, you want to take that and make it even smaller is, you know, do those kids have any interest in taking part in a business when they were raised in a household with somebody who was starting a business? You know, or do they just want a government job? You know, the having a kid that is remotely interested in the family business, that's another hurdle to get over. So you get through those two hurdles. You get to the hurdle of, hmm, can this, do they have the skill set? Now, the parent who raised that child knows how to get the business to the part of the, the, the development of the business that they were alive for, may not have any of the skills needed to take it to the next level or keep it going. People who start businesses tend to be terrible at running them. So, you know, do you even have the skill set that you could pass on to the next generation? And there's the whole old generation wants to do one way, new generation's got a new idea. So you have to be in constant conflict, constructive conflict, and reach conclusions in order for you to work together successfully to pass off the business. You start drawing all these circles and you keep weeding out another percentage every step of the way. The idea that any family business successfully stays within the family is an absolute miracle that the number of things that have to line up. So I bristle at the idea that it's obvious the business should stay in the family. That should be everybody's first instinct. That, that makes no sense. Only to the completely uninformed who have never run a business or been part of a business would think that way. Because if you actually take a look at it, I've had more people cry in my office over family business issues than all the other issues put together. And that's over 30 years. And I've seen some very, very, very hurt feeling over exactly this going on. I'm a huge cheerleader when I see it happening. When I see people trying to make it work. I'll jump in with both feet and help. But to, to, starting from the standpoint of having a stable enough home life while you're starting a business to have kids alone, there's a lot of people that can't even manage that step, much less raise a kid that's not horrified about the prospect of working, of working for themselves or being a boss. Because it, it, it doesn't always look pretty. Mm -hmm. speaking, is it speaking as somebody who's built a business and has a, a child that wants a government job? or Well, that's, well that's, that's part of it. And that was a very interesting conversation because I've got, I've got a son. He's, he's graduated from Queens with a master's in economics. And God love him. I, I think we've got a great relationship. I love talking with him. And I, I think he's doing great in life. But he has nothing to do with the family business at this point. And I couldn't be happier for him. If he came back to me and wanted to get in, we could have the conversation. But part of it was, you know, him watching me be at the front of the room and what comes with that, there's no interest in it. And that's fair ball. There's absolutely fair ball. I completely respect that. Uh, and I've talked to other people. There's other people in my orbit who could have been part of this business or wanted to be part of this business. But no, they grew up in a family where people own businesses and they just want nothing to do with that mindset at all because they left a scar on them at some point. So no, owning a family, owning a business and trying to pass it off with a family, again, complete respect for when it works, but expectation that this is a possibility you should hope for, plan for, or try to force when it doesn't fit can do way more damage than anybody could really calculate. So if it happens, be happy. If you're expecting it or planning for it or trying to make it happen, take a breath because you can put yourself in a world of hurt. Makes sense. All right. So yeah, we had the, I don't know if we commented online, Canada pension recorded a 1.3% return in the 12 months ending the end of March. 
we had this conversation, so you know what I Yep. Do you remember what I said? I don't remember specifically what you said. I know uh, you asked me, how does that compare to us? And and I said, why are you asking how it compares to us? Because you always talk about how we shouldn't compare ourselves to a pension plan. No, absolutely. And it was a good answer to my question. Yeah, curiosity. I mean, it's not as if it's going to you know provide my, my self-worth if we do bad or do good or do bad uh, yeah. or something like that. But no, I, I, I took it as a chance to re- reiterate the idea. You shouldn't invest, you should not invest like a pension fund. Mm-hmm. You don't have unlimited mortality. You don't have, I mean, the Canada pension plan still has strong, positive cash flows from contributions coming into it. You know, so that pension fund is being run with an infinite timeline and under the situation, having strong, positive cash flows into it, which is way different than if you're, you know, 78 years old and living off your risk. Yeah. You know, to take investment advice from a pension fund at that point in your life is uh, wrong-headed at best. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the whole, I'm going to work out like Sidney Crosby. Oh, shut up. Stop doing that. I'm going to manage my money like Warren Buffett. No, you don't have $50 billion. You know, this this whole equivalency that we set up, if, if, big, if smart people or successful people do it, then it must be good for everybody. Just doesn't fly. It mm-hmm. just, it just doesn't work. So, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people looked at Elon Musk for a lot of years and said, you know, he's the pinnacle of success. I can do what he does. And then he bought Twitter. And I heard that's worth about a third of what he paid for it just a year ago. So, you know, uh, even successful people make mistakes and you shouldn't model your life after them. Because next thing you know, you could be <laughs> could be in a position where you're spending way more money than you have on something you don't need. Well, look, and Elon is, is, is making his own movie. Good for him. Like maybe this... Maybe he's fine with having lost all that money investing in Twitter because it's accomplishing a bigger goal in the, the Elon Musk empire. Who knows? The, the, this may work out for him as well. The halo effect. If it eventually works out, then it was all a good idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. You know, Idolizing people or taking a look at institutions or people and saying they're successful, therefore, if I want to be successful, I have to do that. That's dangerous. It's just flat out dangerous. And it's used all the time. And you, It's a very compelling argument. Don't you want to invest like Warren Buffett? Most people go, well, he's the richest man. I guess I got something to learn from that. I shouldn't disagree with him. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you should be smart when you disagree. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to invest like Warren Buffett. I'm going to go buy Bitcoin. Okay. No, you just ran it in the ditch. Like doing the opposite of what these people do is not the right thing either. Right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's another, there's another answer in between, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't do what they do, but don't do the complete opposite of what they do either. Yeah. Again, if you're reading it for entertainment's purposes, then keep going. If you're reading it because the you think it's going to be instructive as to what you should do with your own personal life, it has less value. It has less yeah. value. All right, give me one more. Get me out of us. Get get us out of here on one more. Do you want to go really nerdy? You you know me. <laughs> the answer is always yeah. All right. All right. I'm I'm going to do this for you. All right, I'm going to bring this one up just for you because this is something nobody else will be paying attention to until we bring it forward on a big platform like this. So they are trying to lock down the implementation date for T plus one settlement one year from now. And they're trying to get everybody on board with T plus one settlement for all securities across all platforms. That was the news article today. What's your comment, Josh? (laughs) So... We went to, from T plus three to T plus two. I don't know when, was that five years ago now? That's a good guess. 
somewhere in that range. We went from T plus three to T plus two. On our end, it was a pretty much non-issue. Like you didn't even really think about it. It just, you just woke up one day and you're like, everything settles in two days now instead of three days. So I'm sure there's a lot more moving parts behind the scenes with the actual brokerages and the money movement and all that fun stuff. But I go back to the, my first boss in this business, his first job in finance was riding a bike in downtown Toronto, delivering share certificates from one financial institution, from one investment brokerage to another. That's why we have T plus three, because it takes the, all the bikers quite a lot of time to move from one end of the city to another. And th this is why you could also argue why all the, the financial firms are so close in proximity to each other, because people literally needed to walk things or bike things from one office to another back back in the day. This is probably late 80s, early 90s. So that's where we've evolved from. And there's a lot of legacy reasons why that system was in place. But my expectation now that everything is digital and settled electronically and money is moved from one place to the other and stock certificates don't even exist anymore in physical form. Uh, my, my guess is that this is going to be a non-issue from anybody that's sort of uh, a little bit removed from the very nitty gritty operational detail. And that's historically accurate, but you're missing one really valuable perspective here that I can offer because of my inquisitiveness or pain in the assetness, depending on who you talk to over the years of paying attention to how things work. There was a company, you may remember this name, MRS Trust. Remember them? No, not, not, no, I don't. They were a standalone trust company back in the early 2000s. I believe they still existed. They ended up getting purchased by the Power Corp and McKinsey and rolled in. Anyway, so their, their standalone job was offering self-directed RSP plans. That's all they did. So you could open up a self-directed RSP plan and they charged the same $125 that everybody charged for a self-directed RSP plan. And for that $125, they ran their whole back office system. They produced monthly statements. They did all of the you know, tax slips. They did all of these things. And I sat one of the guys down one day and I said, how can you guys possibly have a business model based on that revenue stream? That doesn't make sense to me that you could charge that little and do all this. Cause I was in their offices, huge offices in Toronto. And I said, I don't get it. What's your business model? And you've heard me say this before. Whenever I see anything, what's your business model? Mm -hmm. I finally got one guy to tell me and looked around the room and said, E plus three, hmm? we get to hold on to all of the money for three days. Every time a trade happens, that's our entire revenue stream. Yeah. That's where they made all their money. So you're right. You're absolutely right. It started where you're talking about because it took that long to move stuff around and then technology kicked in. We could be same day settlement right now. Technology has the tools to do that right now. But it's all of the, the systems that are built on, that's how we make our living. And if we don't make our living that way, we're going to have to charge a fee. There's, the business model has got to evolve in order to support these T plus one and same day settlement that we'll eventually get to. But it's a business model that's holding back the adoption of these things far more than technology. But the business models are important. I guess not to dismiss them because again, the system has reached some kind of an equilibrium right now that it functions. And if we take away economic incentive for some of the settlement players to do their job, it's got to get replaced with something in order for the system to work. So I'm not diminishing it, saying that it's, it's terrible. 
it just needs to adjust. And those things tend to be slower to adjust in my experience. Anyway. Yeah, I'd be interested to know in current times how much of a brokerage's revenue is actually driven from some type of delayed settlement. My, my guess, and this is just a wild guess, I really have no perspective on it, is that it's not that significant. But I, I could be surprised to guess like that. Yeah, I, think, I mean, maybe, maybe now that interest rates are higher, there's a little bit more of a benefit for them holding a bit of cash uh, for a day or two. But I, I would also imagine that this is, this is sort of the same principle as charging transfer out fees, in my opinion, is you charge a transfer out fee to clients that leave, and then that institution charges a transfer out fee when that client leaves them. Because if you're not getting the cash in your 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 doors for two days either, as it is today, then yeah. that that's delaying money coming in. So it just kind of depends on what's the net flow for you as a brokerage to, to determine if you have more cash than you would otherwise if it was a shorter settlement or less cash. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I do know that it's in it, having been in the room when there's conversations with custodians, it is part of the cash carry and that mm -hmm. is part of the calculation. And again, it's less material when interest rates are really low. It's more yeah. material when interest rates are higher but it is part of the calculation. And again, it's, I'm not calling it good or bad. It just is. And if you're going to take that out of the equation to make things flow more efficiently, the system's going to have to continue to make a certain margin. Otherwise people won't invest in it and you won't have, you won't have a functioning system because the system has to function at a very high level. Like it's you know, zero downtime, like when markets go down, that's bad. Right? So it has to be a, a an error free or very, a very robust system for sure. So that, People in there have got to be incented to make enough money to make the proper investments to make it work. Yep, we got it. So, well, there you go, Josh. Hey, this is probably what, well, if Catherine leaves it all intact, this is one of our longer pods, or maybe it's going to be two pods. Yeah. Hey, it was, uh, it was fun. I liked it. There's the reacting in real time. There you go. Took all the pressure off you this time, Josh. No, next time you got it, you have to come with a list for me to react to. Okay. No, no problem there, Colin. Looking forward to next time. Thanks, everybody. If you're breaking a sweat trying to figure out what your financial advisor is talking about, you're not getting the service you need. You probably hate trying to get an answer from them, but you also think moving your accounts will be a headache, and it might be. But working with DontRockTheBoatWealthPlanning.com or .ru isn't exactly stress-free, is it? Call us. We will demystify the world for you. American Capital Management Inc. is a registered portfolio manager in Nova Scotia, British Columbia, and Ontario. Nothing in this podcast should be considered as a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell a particular security. Statements made by the portfolio managers are intended to illustrate their approach and are meant for information and entertainment purposes only. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of iPrivateWealth Inc. iPrivateWealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. iPrivateWealth is a trademark and business name under which iPrivateWealth Inc. operates. This should not be construed as legal, tax, or accounting advice. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.